There are two words for elders in the New Testament. Episkopos and presbyteros. It's where we get the words Episcopalian and Presbyterian. They're used interchangeably, and in 2,000 years, those men and women that have that title have had various roles and responsibilities in all the churches. But they were always leaders, always leaders, especially as the apostles planted churches, they would train and equip elders to oversee, to, to take care of, to do everything that uh, a church would need as far as leadership. I had a church once that used to have an open prayer and praise session in every church service. So as when uh, Grady began prayer, what, uh, what we would do is the elder would start off by asking for any prayer requests and then also asking for any praise. And when he did that, a microphone was passed around. Now, it's always an adventure when you decide to pass a microphone out into a congregation, because once you hand that microphone over, guess what? You're not in control of the service anymore, okay? And occasionally, you might hear from somebody that you haven't heard before. Occasionally, a visitor may take the microphone, but for the most part, you heard from pretty much the same four or five people every week. And they came from three groups. There was a group, a few, that wanted prayer for whatever was happening in their lives right now. It was refreshing. They, they, they truly believed that the church could make a difference in their lives right now. They wanted you uh, praying for that. Then there was prayer for a dog and a cat and a son, in that order, by this one lady. It was always her dog first, then her cat, and then occasionally her son. Then there was always one man, I always remember one man, who had the same praise every week. It was the exact same praise, although he saw it wherever he was spending time in scripture that week, usually in the Sabbath school lesson. And he would find the one place where he could praise God for not seeing him for who he was. The reality was that he was a sinner, but that he saw him in his perfect son, Jesus Christ. No matter where he was reading in scripture, no matter what was happening in his life, his testimony would be, I praise God that God does not see me for who I am, but that when he looks at me, he sees his perfect son, Jesus Christ. The only time that the elders of that church ever received a complaint about prayer and praise time, the complaint was against that man. So could you do something about him and his constant talking about righteousness by faith? That actually was brought to an elders meeting. So I looked at the elders, I was a little bit taken back. By the way, I wasn't surprised that somebody in an Adventist church would complain about hearing about that. But not quite taken aback. I was taken aback just a little bit, and I asked the elders, is there anybody here who feels comfortable about policing the praise time? And fortunately, there was no one who wanted to police the praise time. 
And then I said, is anybody here uncomfortable with the concept of righteousness by faith? Seeing as it's the only righteousness there is and the only righteousness we have. And I got a whole bunch of amens in that room, although I did know at least three elders who had a bit of a problem with it, but they decided to keep that to themselves that night. The churches always seem to have a problem with righteousness by faith. By the way, we still do. I've seen the speakers at camp meeting, and I know that there will be an argument about righteousness by faith at camp meeting in 2022 because we've been arguing about it since 1844. And I see why. It is pretty incredible, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it awfully incredible that Jesus would not only forgive us our sin, but also cleanse us of all unrighteousness? And that all you have to do to get it is to what? Is to believe it. It is pretty incredible, isn't it? Righteousness being a state of being right with God, being absolutely right with God, simply because you believe in his son, Jesus Christ, that's awfully hard to believe. And also, I believe the reason why we have had trouble accepting it, if you will, is that it only works when we accurately remember who we are in order to believe the unbelievable. Remember, Jesus said, I came not to help the righteous. I came to help what? The unrighteous. See, I've got no need for Christ's righteousness if I don't first believe that I'm what? that I'm unrighteous. I have no need of a physician if I'm not what? If I'm not sick. And I think that probably is even bigger reason. I had a, a, a sweet saint here who once told me that he only had one problem with me. And he told me right at the door back there, shake hands, nice sermon, I've only got one problem with you. Oh good. Because compared to other people <laughs> who I know who had more than one problem with me, that wasn't that bad. One problem. And he says, I don't like how you always tell me I have to keep sinning. And I went, hold on. I've never given anybody permission to sin. Have I ever done that? Okay. All I've asked is that we acknowledge that we are what? That we are sinners. But what he heard was, keep sinning in order to receive grace. And this was even after I preached in Romans. We have to authentically believe. We have to look at our history. We have to look at our present. We have to look at what the word says about us if we don't want to believe it ourselves. Believe me, all I need to be reminded that I'm a sinner is to look in the mirror but if for some reason I forget that, well, the Bible's happy to remind me, isn't it? I'm not saying it's happy, but, but you know. So in order to be able to live by this faith, to live in this state of righteousness, I at least have to authentically confess who I am. This is the gospel. This is the good news. When Paul preaches the good news to the Romans, which probably is the, 
the, the, the most complete, if you will, um, extrapolation, study, exegesis in what it means to live by righteousness by faith and to receive righteousness by faith. In Romans, he says, the only way that you can experience the good news is you've got to know the bad news. All have sinned. How many? And have fallen short of the glory of God. So Hebrews has shown us that even the system designed to take care of this nature, if you will, to cleanse and to purify the life-forgiven blood, the system, the blood of the sacrifice, the ministry of the high priest has been limited. He says, we've been, we've been brought that to that point over and over. That human high priest, those animal sacrifices, it, they had to be done over and over and over. It is possible for the blood of goats and bulls to purify us of sin. They keep bringing it up. That high priest, he had to do it every year. He had to do it every day. And what we need is our high priest. Christ our high priest, because once Christ our high priest entered into the sanctuary not made with hands, author of Hebrews says, now it's a whole new ball game. Amen, huh? I've been waiting for a whole new ball game. It allows us to live right with God the only way. So we left off here as to what it means to live by faith, but my righteous one will live by what? will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. My soul takes no pleasure who tries to tell, tell them that faith just isn't enough. Because if I don't believe that it's enough, then I don't believe he is enough. So no wonder his soul shrink, uh, uh, does not take any pleasure in someone who shrinks back in their faith. We're not among those who shrink back, and so are what? are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. Notice, past tense. Faith means you're what? Saved, not will be saved, not in the process of saving, but if you have faith, you are, and this is eternal life, Father, that they believe in you and they believe in the one you sent our high priest. It may not seem right. It may, not, it may seem tough to be reminded of who we really are constantly and who we aren't in him. But our author wants us to see that it's always been that way, even in the people we think we know in our Bibles, and that's about where we're headed. Because he wants to bring up some people who at least we, we they're, they're in a thing called what we have called the hall of faith, right? It's a hall of fame for faithful people. And even though it's called the hall of faith, we actually believe that they're there for other reasons. So the author of Hebrews wants to appeal to this first century Judean Jewish audience because, because believers seem to tend to believe when we get around good people, when we get around heroes in the Bible, that they may be in that, faith, in that hall of faith for something other than what? Other than faith. So he begins with the definition of faith. The biblical definition of faith is the assurance of things what? 
the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received what? Approval. Uh, These guys and gals that I'm about to talk about, the author is saying, the heroes of our faith, our heroes, okay? They were approved. Yes, they were approved, but they were only approved by one thing, and that was what? Is their faith. The faith that they had. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not what? That are not visible. The creation takes place by something not seen. By what? By his word, his breath. In the beginning there was nothing. Absolutely nothing. And God said, let there be light. And a force went out, something that couldn't be seen. But is creation real? It's as real as you and I. All these millennia together, uh, later, right? But it was created by something that is not seen. So remember this, a theme that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand is that creation, a force that is unseen, actually created what is seen. And that there is only one creator, and only the creator can create something out of nothing. The creator looks at nothing and creates something. But it's by something seen or unseen? Not seen. By faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from the things that are not visible. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things what? Of things not seen. Your faith is as real and as powerful, he says, as the creative force of God. It is that tangible. It's just that we can't what? We can't see it. Do we need to? Maybe, but not, not yet, not yet. So how did these ancestors come to be approved? They came to be approved by their what? By being good? By keeping the covenant? By keeping the commandments? By doing great things for God when they were called to do so? No, by their what? By their faith. As God was with, with creation. He, can, he is the only one that can create something out of what? Out of nothing. So one of the problems we have about this group is that we fundamentally have viewed them for something that God does not commend them for. We see them and we judge accordingly. So there's some pretty questionable characters in this hall of faith, isn't there? All right? If, usually not people you would put in a hall of faith, if you will. Even the author, I think it's funny, is all the way down in verse 32. Even the author says, and what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of, and then he lists all these people, all these other people, which means he says, I don't have time to tell you about all these people. I don't have time, okay? So since he doesn't have time, let me summarize. Let's talk about the cream of the crop. If you go back to verse four and take a look, he lists them, and he seems to give reasons for them to be seen as heroes of faith. The first two, usually nobody has any problem with. It's Abel and Enoch, 
Okay? Nobody usually has a problem with Abel and Enoch being in there. But after that, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And then, look, right here, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samson, David, Samuel, and all the what? And all the prophets. No wonder he doesn't have time. That's a long induction ceremony right there. So each of them we can judge ourselves and have opinions as to why. But as to why they should be commended, Hebrews gives the only reason that God commends them, and that is that they have what? They're commended by their faith. So we have to have that context when we're judging their history. Remember, their history may condemn them, but no shrinking back ever moving forward. Because he says, my righteous shall live by what? By faith. But my soul takes no pleasure in shrinks back, who shrinks back in that faith. We're not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who are of faith and have been saved. We actually have to remember this hall of faith is based, their inclusion is based on only that. They received commendation. They were approved by their faith. We're gonna see some people that did some pretty quality deeds. They did some good stuff with their faith, but they're commended by God only through their faith. Because there are other things in their life that does not commend them, but actually what? Condemns them. So we debate who belongs and who doesn't because we think the author is actually commending them for the deeds listed. We go looking for the good deeds. We wanna come to the same conclusion the author does. I, I've heard people, I've, I've heard pastors, preachers, and teachers talk about Hebrews 11 this way. They say that what really has happened with the author of Hebrews is that he's become so nostalgic that he likes to reminisce that he has simply forgotten, or she, I don't know, that they have simply forgotten the bad deeds, which is something we're all guilty of, aren't we? We have a tendency to do what with our history? Be really honest and open and authentic about it, or to what? Whitewash it, right? And I've actually had somebody preach that that's why we have Hebrews 11. Can you believe that? Is that that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He wants to whitewash it. Maybe they're a little old. Maybe they don't remember so much. See, but then what we're left with then would be then judging them between their good deeds and their bad deeds and wondering why he forgot about all of these. See, the people, when, when we say the things, the people that don't belong, the people that don't belong because their good deeds weren't as good as their bad deeds were bad. And we have a tendency then to believe who does and who doesn't belong. So we debate about it. We wonder about it. So before he even starts on the people, he sets up for, the, for us this dichotomy between the two. The dichotomy between their behavior, their deeds, and their faith, which is why they're in the hall in the first place. So he says, by faith we, okay, I saw that. By, and without faith, it's impossible to what? 
It's impossible to please God. Whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Right? It's impossible for him to please God. Abel, an acceptable sacrifice. Enoch, before he could, he, he was even taken away because he pleased God. Noah, he built an ark based on God's warning. Abraham, faith went, his faith said to go to a country he was to receive as an inheritance, live in their tents, as did Isaac and Jacob. All these look good. They're reasons to be commendable. But does their history bear that out? Maybe for Abel and Enoch, but the thing about Abel and Enoch is that we just don't know anything about them, right? The only thing we know about them is the one thing that they did to get them into the hall. And according to the author of Hebrews, it was their what? It was their faith. So without faith, it's impossible to please God. But it changes when we know especially if we were a Hebrew audience in the first century, we all know their history, right? We don't have to be a Hebrew audience in the first century. All those names I mentioned, we all know something about their story, don't we? Does the author of Hebrews know that the people he's writing to knows about their history? Of course he does. And that's why he's writing it the way he's writing it. He wants them to remember their history. He wants us to remember the history. He wants us to, to look at the juxtaposition between their history and where they are now, which is in the hall of what? In the hall of faith. He wants us to be confronted with that. He wants us to see it. You read uh, Exodus and you read Judges and you read First um, and Second Samuel, you read about their histories. Their resumes are, are well published, aren't they? It's no secret about these guys and gals, right? And now all of a sudden we find them in a place to where not only is, is, is Israel as a people commending them, but who is actually commending them? It's God. So that's this dichotomy that has been set up. Their history would condemn them, but their faith, what? Commends them. Their history would condemn them, their hate, faith commends them. I think that's why chapter 11 is here for us. See, by faith, Noah, warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning, built an ark to save his household. By this, he, con he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is accordance of faith. Noah's history includes also what else? After this, a pretty ill-advised encounter with a vineyard, Right? What's funny is that I see some commentaries about what happened with Noah and they almost make it sound like he did it by accident. Okay? Now, if it didn't involve making the wine, I could almost buy that. I could almost buy that. I could almost buy you drinking the wine by mistake. I could, I could see that, okay? But making a vineyard and ask anybody who knows how to make wine, you don't do that by mistake. That's a pretty long process. I was told that if you are a vintner, that it, is, it takes three to seven years for you to be able to begin producing grapes that can actually bottle wine. 
Now, did Moses, uh, Moses, did Noah do this by accident? But what did it lead to? It led to a curse on his grandson. And then the grandson's sons. And now all of a sudden, this earth made new is all of a sudden old again. Ten generations. It took ten generations to nearly get it destroyed. It took less than three generations to ruin it again. And by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive an inheritance. He set out not knowing where he was. Not knowing where he was going. So he was walking by what? He's walking by faith. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land that had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the what? Of the same promise. The covenant that was made with Abraham was given to his sons. This is why he is known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is who? Is God. So even Abraham is called out in this passage, extolling him for having the faith to obey God's call to live as an alien in a strange land because he was looking forward to the heavenly land. But there is the next thing that's mentioned. By faith he received the power of what? <laughs> Procreation. Even though he was too what? Even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful, who, had, who he had what? Who he had promised. So even Abraham is not left with his good stuff. We're reminded of the others, right? Because it wasn't just Sarah that he procreated with. Who was it? He procreated with Hagar. Somebody, by the way, where he lacked faith enough, he had given up on God's promise. In other words, he no longer had faith in God's promise, and he tried to make it happen for himself. See, the thing is, and that's what I'm getting at, is that we all know the story, don't we? So the author of Hebrews actually is writing this for us. You guys know the story. Yeah, he had faith, but, right? He's got stuff on his resume, and he's got stuff that you don't put on a resume. Certainly not what I would put on my resume if I wanted to be inducted into the hall of faith. Excuse me, Greg, it looks like you left a few things out. Who's this Hagar? But no matter what happened, no matter what happened, no matter what went on, anybody, he says, anybody in all of this, we were reminded that when we're tempted to judge any of them, even the good ones and the good parts or the obvious bad ones, Hebrews says this, all of these what? Died. And they died in what? In faith, without having received the promise, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. Talking about Abraham, he saw it from a distance. Three days away, he was shown Moriah. Three days away, and it was all seen from a distance. It's right there, and it greeted them. They knew it. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. If any of them were commended or not commended for their records, they wouldn't have died, is what the author of Hebrews says. If they were good enough, they wouldn't have what? They wouldn't have died. They would have received the promise. 
All of them realize their history. So what do they do? They confess. They confess that they are strangers and foreigners. To me, spiritually, that translates. I'm a stranger and a foreigner. Lord, I got nothing. I got nothing today. This is our confession. Go back to the beginning, the one that seems to have a spotless resume. Go back to Enoch. Was he taken because he wasn't a sinner? No, he was taken because he had what? Because he had faith. Going against all evidence, he looked at this God that his great-grandfather had actually hid from and ran from, and Enoch says, I, I, I got faith, I got faith. I'm gonna answer the call, where are you? I'm right here. God says, I like that faith. Why don't you, why, let, let's go, come on, let's go. You ever heard somebody try to turn it around that the reason Enoch was taken was because he was the only non-sinner in a sinful world? Not true, is it? I believe he's there, but he's there because of his what? Actually, no. He experienced it because of his faith, but he's there because of the grace of God. He was translated by grace through faith, if you will. Which, by the way, will happen to anyone who will believe. For the people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a what? That they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had then an opportunity to return. If they were judged on their deeds, their history would have them shrink back to the earthly land that they were promised. But they had a reason to move forward in spite of the history that condemns them. But it, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. Not even the one who knows their history, the, who has a reason to be most ashamed of them, is, is ashamed to call them his. Why? Because of their faith. Their faith in what is to come and not to shrink back, not to settle. He decided that their history would be the one thing that would not condemn them. And he provided a faith for them in which they could be commended. See, the rest of the list, again, has some histories that are commendable. Abraham, by faith, in offering Isaac, he has the longest resume here. But Abraham, when he put, the, put to the test, offered up Isaac. He had received the promises, was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he'd been told it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. So Isaac's faith in the future, and, and he is commended for his faith also in the future. Isaac invoked the blessings for the future on Jacob and Esau. Now to me, this is where it, it, it gets held up. Was this really commendable? That he put a blessing on Jacob and Esau? What about Jacob and Esau's resumes? Not very good, right? But Isaac acts on his faith. And Isaac believes that if, if God is okay with me, he's gonna be okay with my sons. No matter who they are, no matter what they do, 
Jacob too, he passes it on. By faith, Jacob blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the top of his staff. Jacob's commended only for the same what? He's only commended for his what? For his, for his, his faith. By the way, faith in something that hasn't happened yet. Faith in Joseph's sons. That there would be a future. Same with Joseph. By faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, gave instructions about his burial. Joseph doesn't have a bad resume, does he? He does not have a bad resume. Innocently, he's, he, he's taken captive and we commend him for his faith that he doesn't, that he doesn't uh, take uh, Potiphar's wife, all of these things. We commend him for that strength and that faith. But notice, he's not in the hall of faith for that. He's in the hall of faith because he believes that one day God is gonna do what he promised to do and that is deliver us out of this land. And when you do, when he does, he tells his sons, take my bones with you. None of the good ones are commended for their good stuff. The stuff that we would judge by. The stuff that we would condemn by. We know their biographies. We know it well. So could it be that Hebrews is telling us that their actual judge knows them too, but approves them for something else besides their resume? He approves them for something that can't be seen. See, my condemnation... My resume as a sinner can be readily seen. All I have to do is look in the mirror. All you have to do is watch me for about 20 seconds. And you can see it. I know it. I know it every day. But if I'm going to be commended, I'll be commended for something that can't be seen. And that might be who I am in Jesus. See, my brother in that church every day saw himself by something that couldn't be seen. We'd look on the outside. We'd even get irritated about him talking about being perfect in Christ. So much so that in church, there is somebody who wanted him to shut up about it. So could it be that the author of Hebrews is telling us, it isn't your resume, it isn't your condemnation, it's your high priest. Your perfection is in him. See, Moses' history is very different here than it is in the Exodus. See, by faith, Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Excuse me? Were they really not afraid? Then why did they hide the baby? As a matter of fact, I think the author is, is, is writing that verse, is, is, is writing what is contradictory so that we would get it, so we would understand. Right? Because Amram and Jochebed is, will not be commended for anything but their faith. It's not that they weren't afraid. If they weren't afraid, they would have hid them. Wouldn't have hid him, is what I'm saying. Actually, the only people who wasn't afraid, the only people that weren't afraid of, of, the, of Pharaoh's edict were the Egyptian midwives, right? And God took care of them. 
So by faith, Moses, when he's grown up, refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse, suffered for the Christ to be greater than the wealth, the treasures of Egypt. He was looking ahead to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, unafraid of the king's anger, for he preserved as though he saw him who is invisible. Really, really. Makes it almost sound like it was a conscious decision. But really, the entire thing that, that, that Hebrews just, just said was because he decided to murder somebody and to cover it up. The decision was made for him. If he wanted to save his life, he had to leave Egypt. He had to leave all of that behind. Even his reaction when he was caught, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was what? Afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. His conscious decision was to murder somebody and to cover it up. If he thought it was such a righteous decision, why did he hide it? No mention of this fear in his Hall of Faith induction speech, by the way. Jephthah commended. Even Judges himself says that out of all, all the uh, 70 sons to, to carry this out, Jephthah was the most rebellious. He was, he, he was the, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how to put it. He was the son of a concubine. He's the son of a prostitute. He had serious problems. As a matter of fact, we see it at the end. He accomplishes what, what he was supposed to accomplish and still then doesn't trust God enough to, uh, that, that he offers God something more than his faith. And it ends up costing him his daughter. Jephthah's commended. Gideon. Say, oh, come on, Greg, Gideon, that's not bad. Gideon's asking for faith. In fact, Gideon was very bold in his faith. Make the ground wet and the fleece dry. Make the fleece wet and the ground dry. That's faith, man, that's bold. Yeah, but do we forget what happened afterwards? After Gideon judged, after Israel was united, he makes an ephod into an idol that Israel will prostitute itself for the next 150 years. Hey, by the way, speaking of which, the list includes a prostitute. Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish for those who were disobedient because she received the spies in peace. In other words, she did what a prostitute does and was commended for it. By the way, the list includes not even a person. The list includes the walls of Jericho. The walls of Jericho fell after they'd been encircled for seven days. No, I'm not saying that the walls are being commended by their faith, but what he's trying to say is, is it, 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 the walls came down because of Israel's faith. It didn't come down because of the trumpets or the shouts or the marching around it. It's that Israel had faith that it was gonna happen. Histories condemn, faith commends. Just as the unseen could create something out of nothing, our faith can be that nothing. 
So even all they accomplished, all the things we actually think they've been commended for, even if there's somebody whose resume seems spotless, those that conquer kingdoms, administer justice, obtain promises, shut the mouths of lions, quench raging fire, escape the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others, uh, sorry, Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Is it true? Are you comfortable with saying that the world is not worthy of a martyr? I am. Because every time I encounter a martyr, modern or biblical, historical or, or modern, any martyr, the world's not worthy of a martyr. Surely martyrs get into the hall of faith for their deeds. Author of Hebrews is saying no. None of them do. They've all gained approval through their what? Through their faith. They didn't receive what was promised because God had promised something better for us so that apart from us, they would, they would not be made what? They would not be made perfect. So not even a martyr is perfect. And not even their martyrdom can make them perfect. Because although their deeds were impressive, they still fall short. And God has something better in mind than falling short. He has perfection in mind for anyone to be commended. And there is only perfection available through what? Faith. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of what? See, I read that, and I used to read that and say, all these great, heroic people of faith that we're surrounded by, and, and what he's saying is, no, you're surrounded by a great cloud of sinners who can witness and testify that they are righteous by faith. Not one amen. Because this entire hall of faith is a hall of what? Is a hall of sinners whose sin is no longer reckoned to them because of our perfect high priest. In order to witness to it, we have to acknowledge that. So it isn't that we're surrounded by a great cloud of martyrs. It isn't that we're surrounded by a great uh, group of people who do great things. We're surrounded by a great cloud of sinners who can testify that since they believe, not only are they forgiven, but they're cleansed and they're purified and they're perfect. Let us lay aside every weight then and the sin that clings us so closely. There, right there, there's proof right there. If I preach that you have to keep on sinning, I would have just conveniently left that sentence out, which I've been known to do every now and then. But put aside the weight and the sin that clings so closely. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. 
The high priest is our offering also. The one who shrinks back, the one who shrinks back from faith in this, that's the one that Hebrews 10.29 was talking about. Remember, how much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by those who spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? It's because they shrunk back. Maybe there's something else. Maybe those people are in the hall of faith because at least they've got some good stuff on their resume. Author of Hebrews is saying, don't shrink back from the fact that the only reason that they're in there, the only reason they are to be commended is because of their faith. If we don't, then we proclaim the blood of Christ. If we believe that righteousness by faith is not enough, then we're saying that his blood is not enough, the cross is not enough, and the resurrection power of his spirit is not enough. I talked about this last summer. And I attended a webinar this week that was put on by two professors who wrote a book. The book, they called it The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy. I wish we had written this book. I wish there was some Adventist uh, blood in this particular DNA. We claim to know the, the times in which we're living. We claim to know what the future is. We claim to know what the history is that brought us here. And yet, we're having it pointed out by other people. And I praise God that it's being pointed out by other people. But they wrote the book back in April, and this was a discussion of the book. But of course, a lot had happened since April. And in this particular case, there was a, another mass shooting race-driven in Buffalo just a, just a Sabbath ago, just a week ago. And the opening marks of both professors, I thought, was, was very, very interesting. The professor from Yale said, what struck me this week in reading the both of them, what they had done is they both read the manifesto of the shooter. And they said, what was interesting about the manifesto, the first professor said this, was that he knew for a fact, we know for a fact, that 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 shooter drove for about three hours in upstate New York in order to get to Buffalo. He was about three hours away. You can ask Grady. You don't drive through upstate New York without being bombarded and bombarded and bombarded, bombarded by historic native place names. Oswego, Syracuse, all of them native, native names. A lot of place names, but no what? But no natives. And what was ironic was that he was going to Buffalo claiming that he as a white man was being replaced. And it didn't occur to him as he was driving through. The second one said this, what's really interesting, is that he wasn't a believer. In the manifesto, he says that he wasn't a believer. In fact, there's a line in there that says, I did not seek God's will to do this, and I will not ask God for forgiveness. I am not a believer. However, he says, I espouse and commend and want to live by Christian values. His words. I want to live by Christian values because he saw them as valuing white teachings, white preservation, and white promotion. To him, this is what the North American church has shown him. 
A history unacknowledged is bound to never be examined and never brought to light and never compared. And this is the one of the reasons why we never move on. This is one of the reasons why we shrink back in faith. Nobody wants to talk about our history anymore. Hebrews is prescribing differently. Our histories now serve as not a reminder of condemnation, but a reminder that we're commended only on our faith and his perfection. This is what we're told. But in order to experience that perfection, I have to lay my history before him. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true. To live in the end times means that this is the perfection that we live in. And we're constantly examining, constantly trying to get at what we've taught other people, uh, what the end times really is about, to talk about that, that second beast, the one with only two horns. And that only an accurate history can lead us to perfection. We can only hear the good news if we've heard the what? if we've heard the bad news, how bad it really was, how bad it really is for me, for my church, for a world church, for some of us to just look around and ask the questions, why do people believe some things that they believe about us? What is my role in that? What is my part in that? What have we done to say yay or nay? The miracle of Christ's righteousness is only seen in the light as compared to our darkness. He was the light that came into the world. And the world didn't want to know him. We kept everything in the dark. But man, he still insists in standing in our darkness to be our only light. So we look to Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. In this, we are fearless. And in this, we will not shrink back. We can look back. And when we do look back, we need to confess we need to confess, we need to make as much amends as possible, but in our faith, we will not shrink back. And by the way, examining our past, looking at our past in order to be able to confess is not shrinking back in our faith, that's moving forward. So let's not shrink back from this perfection, not shrink back from our pioneer, not shrink back from our perfecter and our perfection. Thank you for holding on with me, y'all.